0: That song is not the only song that fits well with what we're going to do this morning. I thought to begin reading in Isaiah 43, but I want to begin with restating the opening lines of be still. Be still and know that I am God. If I could boil down the message of Isaiah 40 through 55, I think that would do a sufficient job. Israel and Judah are in these major times of turmoil. And the first part of the book of Isaiah is all about judgment of Israel and Judah and all the nations, some of it even dealing with God judging the entire world in apocalyptic sort of ways, revealing how He's going to bring condemnation and judgment on the world. But as you come to the second part of the book of Isaiah, it is a section about who God really is and how He's going to fulfill His promises. He's going to be loyal to his covenant. He's going to redeem his people. And the opening words of this section in Isaiah 40 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He has not ignored her sins, but now they have received the recompense for their iniquity and for their evil, and it's the time for restoration. It is the time for comfort. And now, though he has has pronounced judgment because of their wickedness and their sin, now he is proclaiming comfort and peace and mercy and grace. And as you come down to the latter section of that text in verse 9... He is telling them to pronounce the good news, the gospel. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You may be familiar with this text, and uh, I'm always impressed with songwriters. Behold Our God, the lyrics to that song are incredible. They uh, envelop the whole thought of what's going on through Isaiah 40 through 55 in a way that you just can't do in words. Uh, just saying the words and me just speaking to you and you just reading here, there's an element of singing that's just different. And I think that you experienced that hearing the song this morning, talking about the, the fact that he is the creator. And the, the very things that Isaiah is saying here, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? To whom were you liken God? Uh, he is the one who's created all these things. And, and this is the foundation of everything. When we stop for just a moment and think about how amazing And how powerful God is. It's just incomprehensible. We we look around at the world and and he talks about how, how God brings out the stars without number. And yet he knows everyone and there's not one missing. No matter how intelligent we are, no matter how much wisdom we have acquired, we can't even begin to comprehend the power and the might of God. And the judgment he was going to bring on his people because of their wickedness and their evil was going to be terrifying. It was going to be horrific. And he's described that in the earlier part of the the book of Isaiah. And now there's going to be this other picture of God, a God of comfort and love and mercy and grace, who's going to restore his people. And they needed some assurance that he was going to be able to do this. They needed to, to understand that he has the power and the ability to bring them back from this state of seeming disrepair. And the imagery all throughout Isaiah 40 through 48 and even extending into 55 is one in which God is kind of, it's called uncreation. He's, he's dismantling the created world and then he is recreating because that's the kind of God he is. And the, the, the whole, I can't read Isaiah 40 through 48. I wish we had time this morning to do that. I would encourage you to, to do this. But what I want to do this morning is just pick out the major themes, and there's a lot of them, but we're just going to do a few, some major themes throughout this section that I think are powerful in this idea of adoring God for who he is. And for us to learn the way that, that Old Testament writers and New Testament writers both portray God and the way they characterize him in appreciating who he is. And the first of these is just the idea that he is creator. He is a God of power, but within that idea of power is the fact that he is the creator of the whole world, of the universe. Everything is in the palm of his hands. The nations are a drop in a bucket, it says in verse 15 Isaiah 40. Everything that we look at and we are impressed with, as we look around and we see the world, it is like nothing before God. And of course, God is not saying that to diminish the work of His hands. That's not the point at all. It's just for us to appreciate that all these amazing things we see—they don't even come close to how amazing and how marvelous the God of all creation is. Not only is He Creator, but He is Ruler of all the world. He is King. We sang about this. He is the one who controls all nations. He is eternal. He says, who has performed and done this, Isaiah 41, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. He is before all things and he is forever. He is eternal. Just think about that. Think about the significance of the everlasting nature of God and who he is and that nothing else can compare to him in any sort of way. And so the foundation of all of this, this text in Isaiah 40 through 48 especially, is understanding that God is the creator of all the world. We can't get into the dynamics this morning of why Isaiah is doing all of this, but a significant portion of this, and I will talk about this here in a few minutes, is contrasting their devotion, their their unfaithfulness to God, and their faithfulness to the idols, to the things of the world, to the things that men have created and come up with, and how his children have gone after these worthless things instead of uh, coming to him, instead of appealing to him and trusting him, they've gone after things in the world. And now he is proclaiming his might. He is proclaiming that he is creator, that he is king, that he is first and last, but also he has to prove it. And and that's a lot of what's happening here in Isaiah 40 and, and going forward. He's going to give them assurance that all of these promises he's making to them, he can actually keep. And he's going to do that in a few different ways. There's a number of ways he does that, beginning with chapter 36 through 39, which if you're familiar with Isaiah, you may be confused as to why this is there, but I'm gonna give you at least a partial answer to that. Isaiah 36 through 39 is this seemingly strange text, although all the textual evidence shows that the book of Isaiah is a solid piece. It's never been dismantled, there's not pieces added later or anything like that, and so it should be there, and every manuscript has it there, And it's the story about the Assyrians coming against Hezekiah. And why is this here? I want to give you a really quick boiled down version of this. It is an offering of proof that God can do what God says he's going to do. The Assyrians come, and they are pinning Jerusalem up. They are surrounding the walls, and if you remember the story, you remember by the power of God, he slays the Assyrian armies. Uh, The rulers go back to the land, they end up being killed as well, and Hezekiah and his people are delivered, miraculously. And so this historical count is included in here so that we see the very things that God is saying he's going to do. And if we go back to Isaiah 35, which is the conclusion of the first section, really, before you get into the historical section, this is a a foreshadowing of the blessing that God is going to bring on Israel. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. He's going to bring life back to this area that had been decimated because of their wickedness and evil. But for our purposes, look at verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Does anyone have an anxious heart this morning? Maybe we look around at the world that we're in and the evil that we see around us, the wickedness that takes place, the difficulties we face, how corrupt things look. I'm thinking that many people have anxious hearts in our time, just like they did then. But he says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. All the way back in 35, though it's in the first section, you're beginning to see content that is uh, all over the place in Isaiah 40 through 48. That God wants his people to understand he has the ability to do this. Do not fear. God is going to come. He is going to save you. He is a God of foreknowledge. And a lot of what we see here in this text is the reality that God is able to predict the future. He's able to, to recount the past with precision and accuracy. He's also able to predict the future. I just spent some time with the high school class talking a little bit about prophecy, and one of the things I told them, which is completely true, is that for the most part, prophecy is not about future prediction. When you read through the Old Testament, most of it is about talking to people in that time and in that place that need instruction, need correction, need encouragement. And then as you work through that, there are, of course, there are connections to um, the Messiah that is to come. Sometimes they don't even recognize those connections, and Peter talks about that. They say things they don't even understand. They wish they knew more about them. And so certainly there are Messianic implications there, but most of the Old Testament, most of the prophets... Um, it's not as if people are just speaking and it has no meaning whatsoever to to those people then, and it has some meaning a thousand, two thousand years later. That's not what's happening. But Isaiah is unique in the fact that God is purposely saying these things are going to happen hundreds of years later. It's, and the reason I point this out is because there are even uh, people within conservative circles theologically who will go down this road that this could be written by somebody else after the time of the exile. Here's the thing, and I can't get into this. If you want more information, talk to me later. That's a bunch of rubbish. It does not work in the book of Isaiah. If that's the case, Isaiah is worthless, and you should throw it in the trash. Because the whole point of Isaiah 40 through 48 is that God can predict the future, that he speaks things before they happen. This is not the only verse that talks about this, but it's a good one in Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. I am God, and there is no other. Go mark that in your Bible as you read through Isaiah 40 through 48. You'll be marking all over the place. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. I should say ancient, not accident. That was an accident. Ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, what God is doing here, and we need to understand this, is he is contrasting himself with the worthless things created by the hands of men. He's saying, here's who I am. There's no one like me. And the idols that you are so prone to go after, the things of the world, the things that men come up with and create that you want to go after, that you want to be loyal to and give yourself over to, they will do nothing for you. And so this is the point God's making. Hey, go. He challenges them. Hey, you go tell me the things that are to come. Let's see if your idols can tell us the things that have already been, the things that are to come. As you begin reading through the book of Isaiah and 40 and onward, you'll see he challenged them a number of times. Go, Go get your idols. Let's see what they can tell us about the future. And of course, they can't even say anything. They're dumb. They're mute. They can't even speak. They are totally worthless. And as you work through these texts in Isaiah 40-48, through 48, here's what comes out as God is comparing himself to the idol gods. God is the creator, the founder of the world, as we've already talked about. He formed, he created humanity. And this is brought up a number of times in this section. Yet, on the other hand, the idols are created by the hands of men. They're not the creators, they are the created God has power over the nations. He rules all nations. The idols have control of nothing. They are are worthless. They can't even speak. None of of anything they do amounts to anything at all. He says, when I look, this is 41 verse 28. When I look, there is no one among these. there, There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. A little bit before that. In verse 22, let them bring them, speaking of the idols, tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know you are God's, do good or do harm. They can't even do good or do bad. That's how worthless they are. They can't do anything. That we may be dismayed and terrified. He's mocking them, right? Because God is the one who brings terror on the nations when he judges them, and this has already been covered in earlier sections in Isaiah. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, An abomination is he who chooses you. Later on in the text, he he tells his people, I'm telling you these things, I'm predicting what's going to come, so that you can't say, oh, my idol told me this. This is how delusioned they are. And how much they've gone after the created things of man. That God, before they can even do it, he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm telling you this right now so that later on you can't go get your idol and say, my idol told me this was going to happen. He even predicts the worthlessness of idols. He shows how foolish a number of times idolatry actually is. That they get a piece of wood or a piece of metal, and with part of it, they, they burn a fire and they make their dinner, and the other part of it, they sculpt something with the hands of a skillful man, and then they bow down and worship it, not realizing how foolish that is. These are all the words of God through Isaiah, mocking even his own people who have done these sorts of things. He's going to declare what is to come, and the idol gods cannot predict anything, He delivers his people and he brings redemption. The idols, they can't deliver those who worship them. In fact, they themselves are brought into exile. Their own people have to pick them up and carry them into captivity with them. That's the image in Isaiah 46. That's how worthless these idols are. God is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. But Isaiah 46, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity. He's portraying there what happens when one nation defeats another, and before they leave, they're grabbing their worthless idols to take with them in exile when they leave and go to this other land. That's how worthless the things of men are. God glorifies his people and ultimately brings glory to himself, whereas the idols bring shame to their worshipers. Isaiah 44 talks about this as well as 45 and 46. That ultimately it's a shameful thing to those who have bowed down to these idols, who carry them from place to place, who set them up, and then they bow down to them. And this is what God says to them. Even to your old age, I am he. To the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and will save. He's contrasting the fact that they create, and they carry, and they protect, and they save their idols. And he says, I'm going to do all of that for you if you would just follow me. And so he is the God of comfort. The God of deliverance. In this text... I've already pointed out that it makes this statement, fear not, and it, it begins in verse, uh, chapter 40 and verse 1 with this phrase, comfort, comfort my people. If you were to begin reading in Isaiah 40 and read through 55, you would find the word comfort at least 14 times. Now, it may be hidden at times in English because sometimes it's translated in other, as other, another word like relief, Uh, But it's interesting that actually both of these, the idea of fearing not and comfort, they are in the beginning, toward the beginning of the book of Isaiah. When God is proclaiming in Isaiah chapter 1, I will have comfort or I will have relief from my enemies. He's going to bring judgment on those who are against him and against his people. And he tells Ahaz, you remember this text in Isaiah 7, to fear not, I am with you. Now, I just want to quickly reference a couple texts here, again, because I can't read the whole thing, but I want you to see how these themes carry through throughout the entire book, and this is how good writing works in any book, but there is certainly a heavy emphasis here in Isaiah 40 through 48. In Isaiah 43, for instance, is this statement about his election, his choice of Jacob and how he is going to fulfill his promise to to Jacob, he's going to redeem him and restore him. And he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. A little bit later in verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I'm going to bring your people back, and I'm going to restore Israel. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made, he's bringing in this idea of creation, all of them are going to be brought back to bring glory to him and to be restored as the people of God out of the nations who had brought judgment on them. And then their job, their task in this is mentioned in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. So in this text, there is a major emphasis on the idea of comfort. It's found numerous times within not just here, but also fear not do not fear. When we understand who God is, when we realize he is the creator of all the universe, that all power is in his hands, and all the things around us that seem powerful are really nothing before him. When we understand that and realize that he is a God of assurance, he is a God of comfort and deliverance, all of that then gives us opportunity to testify to his greatness. We become his witnesses. Now, this again is a contrast to the idol's He says, bring them out, testify, be a witness for what they can do. And of course, there is no testimony because they're worthless. But this is your role as my servant, he tells them, that you declare the things that I have done for you, that you believe in me, that you see my power, that you realize I have delivered and I have saved you, just as I said that I would do. Now, this brings me to the last section of what I want to deal with, and that is the idea of the servant, which is somewhat confusing because people say, well, who is the servant of the Lord? And I think ultimately when we get to the end, we realize that Jesus is the pinnacle of this prophecy and the fulfillment. And there's a lot more going on there than we can talk about right now. But I do want to point this out. There's actually at least two servants in the text in Isaiah, which is why it gets so confusing. There is the sinful servant which is where God is dealing with his people and how he has to uphold them and he has to take care of them. For instance, in chapter 41, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There are other texts that say, who is blind and deaf but my servant. This is the sinful servant. The servant who was supposed to listen to God, but didn't. But this is where we understand, again, the glory of God and who he is. He is a God of comfort, a God of grace and mercy and love. He has chosen his people, and despite their faults, despite their iniquity and their sin, he has found a way to bring them back to himself. And he does this through the saving servant. There is another servant. And it's twice in this text, beginning in 42. 42 and 52 and 53 are the first and the fourth of these sections. And I think they are very squarely messianic. They're, they're dealing with this one who is to come, who is going to deliver, and there may be some fulfillment before this with Isaiah and other characters who fit some of this, but, but the primary in indication here is that there's going to be one who comes in the future who's going to deliver the people of God. And while you have this sinful servant, the one who has lived in iniquity and wickedness, who desperately needs the help of God and his strengthening and his upholding, this servant is quite different. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is not the one that he is discouraged by, who has sinned, who has done wrong, that he has to care for and help. No, this is one in whom his soul delights. This one will bring forth justice to the nations. And there are various other aspects To how this servant is different as well, but I want to push us forward to Isaiah 52, the beginning of this last section, even though we often start in 53. But in 52 is where it actually begins in verse 13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This servant is going to bring the power and the strength of the Lord. He's going to deny he's going to die for the, the sin of his people he's going to to die because of the sinful servant and their iniquity and the things that they have done wrong the servant who desperately needs compassion and grace and love this servant is going to come and he's going to make things right. he's going to bring justice he's going to bring redemption and deliverance and salvation and so we're talking about behold your God but here God says behold your servant. Behold the servant who is going to come and bring deliverance. Who's going to take people like me and people like you who have sinned before the Lord, who have lived in iniquity, who have done wrong, and in that moment he's going to say, you are mine. I have chosen you. I will help you. I will strengthen you. Fear not. Be comforted. Can you imagine if there was no saving servant? What would have been the destiny for Israel? People laden with sin. Time and time again, they had chosen the world, they had chosen idols, worthless idols. And maybe we laugh at that. It's so easy to laugh at at this idea that they would bow before metal images or a piece of wood or any of that sort of thing. But but what about the idols that we face in in our world? We give ourselves over to things as silly as sports or our jobs or whatever else, things that are going to... Go away and be nothing in the end that are going to have no significance whatsoever when we stand before the almighty God, the God of creation, the king of all the universe, the one who is eternal. He's not going to ask you what your batting average was when you were in high school baseball. He does not care. Or how many touchdowns you scored or how many sacks you had. None of that will make any difference whatsoever, but we make those things idols in our culture. And it's not just that. I know there are others. But that's just a simple, easy one. We we even call these people heroes, right? These sports figures. There's these heroes that we, we, they're idols, they're icons in the world around us because they're so significant. So before we judge harshly these children of God from times past who got caught up with the idolatry of the world they lived in, we better realize our own lot. And how desperately we need the saving servant, the suffering servant, who felt the nails upon his hands and bore the iniquity of sinful man, the eternal God who brought himself to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. If you want to put your hope and your trust in him this morning, we invite you to do so. Why don't you come as we stand and we sing together?